Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we will look today. We're going to finish our series screens, and uh, I'm going to, in the time that I have together, deviate for this message from that series, not because I don't have anything to say about screens, but uh, I have been blessed personally with these first four weeks of this series, and I pray that all of us have received some wisdom to leverage screens for the sake of the gospel. Amen? I know I have, and yet at the same time, I have a clear word that I want to share today around the subject of discipleship. 2 Timothy chapter 1, I want to welcome those that are streaming live as well. We pray God ministers to you right where you are. We're going to begin in verse 3. Y'all seem a little bit cold this morning. Y'all awake? I told them in the earlier game, I want you to warm up a little bit so you can enjoy today's message. The more you talk back, the better this is going to be. All right, so feel free. Feel free to respond. I feel a little preached today, and uh, I want to preach the word today that I think will hope or hope will draw you and I closer to what I'm considering active participation in growing in our faith. As we will read, you and I are given the gift, but you and I then must fan it into flame. We must stoke it into flame. We must fan the gift we've been received or we have received into flame. Today's passage is one of those passages that impresses upon my heart a really deep appreciation for people who, like Paul, live faithfully until their dying day. Uh, My greatest mentor was an 83-year-old lady named Dorothy Dunn, who I met when I was 16, and we would spend hours together. She was my mentor for the first three years of Christian living, and she taught me more about the Bible than anybody else. I did her yard work, but it was a good deal. It was a good deal, Savannah, because I was supposed to be laying black plastic in 126 degree heat, but we would sit on the porch eating Fig Newtons and talking about the book of Revelation. And so it was good. I was getting paid to talk about scripture with her. I used to set up my old, you remember the old school, you young bucks don't even know what we're talking about. They used to have these tapes, they're real big, and you'd twirl them up. They're called VHSs. And uh, it was back in the day when we blew in our our video games. (sighs) We blew on our video games, you wouldn't imagine, but we had these VHSs and you would take them and put them up on your shoulder and you'd film somebody. And so I'd set it up on a tripod, and I'd let her teach the Bible for three or four hours in her living room. Then I'd go back to my VCR in my room, and I'd get my book out, and I would stop, fast forward, rewind, and I'd listen as she would teach me the scriptures. And she lived faithfully. I got to preach her funeral just several years ago. But it urges upon you and me a call to do the same. Verse 3 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, I thank God, Paul said, whom I serve. Everybody say, serve. Same word and used in Romans 12 to talk about sacrifice. The God I sacrifice for with a clear conscience as my ancestors did. Notice how Paul is connecting his service to God's kingdom is a continuum. I'm only continuing what my ancestors did. I ain't starting this. I ain't going to finish this. I'm just continuing this. When I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, watch this, I remember in your tears, I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. I want to be filled with joy to see you. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and now your mother Eunice. And now, Paul said, I am convinced 
It lives in you also, that same sincere faith. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle. Everybody say rekindle. Revitalize, stoke, fan a flame, the gift of God that is given to you through the laying on of my hands, Paul said. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and sound judgment, sound discipline. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Paul said, don't you be ashamed of me. Don't you throw me a pity party because I'm in jail. Don't you throw me a pity party because I'm about to get my head cut off by King Emperor, or Emperor Nero. No, 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 no. I am, I am, this is the call of God on my life. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of that reality. No, no. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, he said. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. You must rely on the power of God, Christians. Sharing in the suffering for the sake of the gospel. He has saved us, God, Christ, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before even time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death. Don't you like that? When Jesus met death, death died. I like serving a God who's so powerful that when he gets around death, death can't even do what death's supposed to do. It only gives way to life. He abolished death and has brought life. This is good news in the midst of a global pandemic. He's brought life and what? Immortality. He's brought the ability to live forever. He's brought immortality. Who has? Christ. Watch this. Through the gospel, he's brought immortality to light. No longer dark. Through the gospel. For this gospel, he claims it his own. I was appointed a herald, apostle, and a teacher. What a major text. Paul says in verse 6, For this reason, I remind you to rekindle afresh, to revitalize, to stoke, to get the fire going. I want to tackle this text today in a way that will hopefully push a burden upon you and me, that we will live with a burden. I'm titling today's message, Molding Foundations, Fire in Our Souls. Fire in Our Souls. Say, so fire in our souls, molding foundations. One of the core values of our church is to mold the foundations of many generations. Paul tells Timothy, there is a fire in my soul. Won't you say to your neighbor real quick, just say, I got a fire in my soul. Come on, just tell him. Say, I got a fire in my soul. Would you pray with me? Father, in these moments we have together, I pray that you would help me by your grace to stand flat-footed and not worry about the eyes that are looking back at me, but help me to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, for your glory and for our good. Lord, the day and the time is now for us to hold dearly, to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. God, knowing that he who promised is faithful, even while we are yet faithless, you will remain faithful. We thank you today, Holy Spirit, that you're going to speak to every heart to rekindle a fire, Set a fire in our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Your life, my life, has a spiritual journey. You're on it right now. I am on mine right now. Anyone and any person who has ever done something meaningful for the advancement of humankind, for the advancement of humanity, for his purpose at some point in their life has stood within the river of their own spiritual maturity. Such is the case of a man who saved Chrysler automobiles. He was the inventor of the Ford Mustang. Now, I know for you young bucks that don't mean much anymore because you see a Ford Mustang on 92 100 times a day, right? But when the Ford Mustang first came out, what a heartthrob 
of an engine, a heartthrob. The car sold a million of its kind in its first year of making. Why, you ask? All because of the name of the man who designed and built it. His name is Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca. A name of yesteryear. I'll show you a picture of him. It it was a name that came to be known as a name synonymous with integrity, a name synonymous with know-how, a name synonymous with skill, a name synonymous with discipline, a name synonymous with leadership. As you can imagine from the name Iacocca, he was an Italian from the East Coast who rose so quickly in power to the top of the Ford Motor Company. When he became leader of the Ford Motor Company, he designed the Mustang and Ford took off. He put Ford on the map. Then through a technical maneuver by a man that was a little bit jealous named Henry Ford, voted him down and dismissed him. And in his autobiography, Lee Iacocca said, I didn't get mad, I got even. And he got even the old-fashioned way got even. He became president of Chrysler. When he became president of Chrysler, he, de- uh, he designed a new fleet of cars. He took on a $1.2 billion loan from the government, and he paid it back so fast Washington did not know how to cash the check. They were amazed at how quickly with his debt forgiveness. He became an icon of the Americas, right, of his generation, how to live a life with integrity, how to live a life with skill, how to live a life with discipline, how to live a life with know-how, and how to live a life of leadership. When he was asked later in his life how he got to this point, how did he become the man that he was, he started to reflect on his childhood years and his parents, which were good practicing Catholics. He was a Catholic as well. He said, my parents taught me how to make, and I quote, good confessions. My parents taught me how to make good confessions before I took holy communion. Now, I know some of you in this room have never done any wrong, so you don't need to make confession, okay? I know and understand that, but a lot of us, I think this is one reason why King God probably is, uses me, because I'm, I'm honest enough to just admit I need to make confession. I am as honest as honest gets, as authentic as authentic can be, as vulnerable as vulnerable can be. And, and the reality is his parents taught him how to make good confessions. This was a practice they did before the priest. That's what you do as a Catholic. And Lee hated it. In his autobiography, he tells us as a kid he couldn't stand it because he hated having, as type A leaders don't want to slow down enough to reflect on the morality of what they're doing. They don't want to pause about their own wrongs. But he became the person who after a while saw the sense in it and he came to appreciate it. He had to stop every week and realize where I'd wronged people, where I'd said wrong things, where I had wrong motives, how I'd run, done wrong of, of, to others. And it developed a rhythm in his life. And it became, I quote in his autobiography, the best therapy in my life and confession to the priest made me the man I am today. Now here is a man who saved thousands of jobs, who redeemed an entire industry, and when asked what made him the man that he is, the leader as he is, he contributed to a Christian practice of weighing right and wrong in his mind, of weighing right and wrong in his heart and confessing it to somebody else. This is his spiritual journey, Lee Iacocca. I only bring it up not because only Lee Iacocca, but I bring it up because some of you, I believe I'm surrounded by some people in church today, you had parents who taught you how to do the right things too. 
You had parents at some point in your life teach you between right and wrong as well. In fact, can I just go ahead and say, some of you are in church this morning, not because you loved church when you first started going to church. But you're in church this morning because your mama or your daddy or your grandmama or your granddaddy, God, they brought you to church when you hated church. I, I, I'm surrounded by some people this morning who, who, who you're in church today because your daddy didn't make church an option for you when you were a kid. Y'all better get with me really early, okay, where this is going today. Where your mama didn't give an option anymore whether or not you're going to have the things of God at the forefront of your life. That your mama, your granddaddy, your grandmama, they made you go to church. And you'd go to that boring church service and you counted every ceiling tile in that sanctuary. You know every light. You know every little stroke of wrong on the wall you knew what what happened at what time and you listened to some boring sermon that you couldn't relate to and you said to yourself as a young buck as soon as I am of accountable age I'm not ever going back to church but here you are and it's Sunday morning and you're inside somebody else's church and let me just go and say, ain't nobody made you come to church today. Ain't nobody put a gun to your head this morning. Ain't nobody woke you up this morning and told you to get your keys. Ain't nobody told you last night you got to get your clothes out. Ain't nobody put a gun to your head and threatened that you have to go to church. But you came to church this morning not because you had to come to church, but because you get to come to church. And what you came to discover through those years is what your mama and what your daddy and what your grandmama and what your granddaddy and what your aunt and your uncle, what they were teaching you was actually real. That prayer actually works. That God actually hears the faintest cry of his children. And God actually steps into some situations. That you came to learn that fasting is real. That faith is something to be personal. That God steps into our condition. And now your mama and daddy are long gone but you still thank God every time you remember them church don't you ever underestimate the power of a praying mama don't you ever underestimate the power of praying parents don't you ever underestimate the power of a praying spouse don't you ever underestimate the prayers of saints that have gone by because their pranks are forever a memorial before the throne of God did you know your grandparents prayers don't have an expiration date they keep on circulating in heaven they keep on going before the throne of God they don't just spoken one time and disappear no, no, no. They're eternal. God actually says in Revelation, they become like incense in his nostrils. That our prayers extend long after you and I have breathed our last. These people gave us a foundation for which to stand on. Now, I know. I know. For some of you in this room, that ain't your story at all. Your mom and dad were such heathens. You considered a miracle like the incarnation that you made it out of your house with any form of sanity altogether. All, all I want to comfort you too. You shock yourself when you come to church. You get out of the car and you don't even know why you're in the parking lot. Why am I walking to this front door? How, how did my life take these twists and turns? So hear me, if that's you, you may not have a familial heritage in the Lord, but you got a Christian heritage. 
And you got a lot of people who've come along before you and laid the foundation. Did you realize there's been people in Cherokee County laying foundations for centuries? There's been people for decades and scores of years that have prayed and they've labored before us and they've laid foundations for the gospel to go. And listen, you who, you who are now not having a familial heritage but a Christian heritage, you get to join in the great succession of a continuum of an army of believers where your life has meaning when you build upon what they have left us. Hear me, church. None of us come to faith on our own. Hear me. None of us start faith and none of us end faith. Jesus said, I'm the alpha and omega. You didn't start your faith and you won't determine your last dying breath. That is not yours to determine. But here it is. You ready? You and I are the continuum in between. We didn't start our faith. We won't end our faith. But we are the continuum in between. That's Timothy's story when we come to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Here Paul writes his most personal and most poignant epistle. This is close to Paul's death. Scholars tell us it's his last epistle. He's writing to his young charge in the ministry, his young protege. Can I just go ahead and say every young pastor needs an older pastor? Can I just go ahead and say every Christian needs an in-person pastor? I didn't say every Christian needs a podcast pastor. I didn't say every Christian needs a, a YouTube pastor. Every Christian needs an in-person pastor. Every Christian needs a shepherd of their soul. Just like the under-shepherds need the great shepherd of his soul, of that soul, that soul of that church. And Paul now writes to his young protege, his young Timothy, and he tells him, Listen, in 1 Timothy, he tells him how to manage the affairs of the church. He tells him about all the technical matters because, again, Timothy's in Asia Minor trying to literally pastor a megachurch by all stretch of the imagination. Probably 10,000 people in Asia Minor at this point. And Timothy is trying to minister, be ministered to by Paul. But listen, let me tell you something. When, Timothy, when Paul gets to 2 Timothy, he ain't interested in no technical matters of ministry anymore. He ain't talking about all the little I's and all of crossing the T's because, listen, when your life is on the line, you ain't thinking about ministry tactics anymore. You're thinking about the relationships that are nearest and dearest to you. When you get in your life is on the line and you know your head's about to be cut off, you ain't worrying about the technical realities of God's household. You're worried about the people that you've poured your life into. You're worried about the people that you've invested into and what you're going to leave on record. And here in 2 Timothy, Paul leaves a little bit of his life. When we read the text, we can see Paul's life leaking through the ink of his pen. It's a personal tone, isn't it? When I read it, did you get that I, I care about you tone? That personal tone? Timothy, I care about you. Let me read it again. I thank my God, verse 3, whom I serve with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did when I constantly, Timothy, remember you in my prayers night and day. The highest form of discipleship is night and day intercession. There is no higher form of discipleship in the scriptures than when you pray for somebody night and day. It's the highest level. He said, I thank God with a clear conscience. I serve that God. He knows that Timothy will outlive him. He recognizes Timothy will carry the mantle of ministry. He will be the faithful pastor. And now he can thank God. Thank God for Timothy. But even in this, Paul teaches us something about discipleship, doesn't he? Doesn't he? He teaches us that discipleship is more personal than it is pragmatic. He teaches us that discipleship is more relational than it is tactical. He, he teaches us, we must understand, that discipleship is more intimate than it is instructive. Oh, yes, discipleship is more 
caught than it is taught. Yeah, there's a place for teaching. Yes, there's a place for instruction. Yes, there's a te- place for sound doctrine. But, but discipleship is one of those things you catch it by the people you hang out with. You catch it by the company you keep. You learn how to pray not by reading a book on prayer. You learn how to pray by being with somebody who knows how to pray. You, you learn how to fast not by reading Elmer Town's book on fasting. You learn how to fast by getting up next to somebody who knows how to fast. It's not only in the church, though, y'all. This is in all mentorship. Let me, let me go into your world. Think about the mentorship in the business world or the musical world. Now, y'all look at me and y'all know I don't have much musical talent. I don't have much musical ability at all, okay? But I can appreciate some good music, all right? I still love stringed instruments, Okay, you young bucks, there's these things called violins. And what we used to do is we'd go to these like downtown places and you would sit next to this thing called an orchestra. Okay, and it wasn't, it wasn't like mbop. It was like, you know, they, they put this weird thing underneath their chin right here and they held it right here and, and they grabbed this little thing like this. And, they, and, and it's called a violin, right? I love bagpipes and I love the violin. But there is a, a violin called the Stradivarius. Stradivarius, dollars. Wowzers, $9.8 million for a Stradivarius. Stradivarius could find perfect wood. How would he do that? He would go into the woods and he would go knocking on the trees. And as he knocked on the tree, he would have to listen for the echo in the woods. He would hit on the tree. He was like an arm. He catches up with Pellicini. He found him walking one day through the woods, knocking on trees. And they said, uh, Mr. Pellicini, what is that that you are doing? He said, I'm going to build a Stradivarius. They said, a Stradivarius... And he had already built several Stradivariuses up to this point. And the challenge, church, is that not even the best American factories can recreate the pure sound of a Stradivarius. It has to grow in composition. The tree has to last for decades. It has to form knots that come together in the tree. Catch this. When you cut the tree down for a Stradivarius, guess what? you got to set the wood in the exact right amount of moonlight that has the right gravitational pull to pull the sap out of the wood. It has to be in perfect conditions. There's no manual on how to ultimately find a Stradivarius tree. You just have to be able to thump it and hear the echo. And, and, and here it is that these violins that cost millions of dollars and are studied with millions of dollars and conservatories around the world, they cannot be replicated. You just have to be able to walk with a man who knows how to thump a tree and listen for the echo. Let me tell you something, church. If a violin costs that much money and it makes that pure of a sound and it cannot be taught by a textbook and it cannot be taught by a seminary room and it cannot be taught by a university classroom. It can only be taught by following a man who knows how to thump a tree. How much more, how much more does it take for us as the people of God to learn how not to kill our spouse? How much more does it take for us as the people of God to learn how to raise your kids? How much much more does it take for us as the people of God how to fall on your knees in prayer and how to be a good steward? You listen to me, church. You can go all to the schools and all the schools you want to. We advocate that. We believe in that. You can read all the books you want to. You can learn all you want to. But let me tell you, in our day and age, what's going to separate the church from the real church, the sifting that's coming, is you and I better learn how to get next to a wiser, more mature believer who can teach you how to thump a tree 
tree and listen to the echo. This is why podcasts won't work. This is why online church won't work. You got to get around people who are in relationship with you. Paul, at the end of his life, said, hey, I'm convinced the sincere faith that was in your grandmama and is in your mama is in you too. This is the relational aspect of faith. God will give you growth. I'm going to tell you in ways that growth will not come any other way. In one-on-one, personal, intimate discipleship relationship. And so what I want to do today is I want to lay a little bit of my pastoral burden down. And you take it or leave it. I'm concerned. I'm concerned that as I preach this message today, we are filled in our Western world with churches and Christians who have gotten so impersonal with their faith. Again, to leverage the gospel for social media, to leverage it for online church is amazing. For people, I get it during a pandemic, but with online church and with, again, live stream and podcast and the impersonability of even technological advancement. We got a lot of people going to church that don't even know each other. And for some people that fills churches, they, their best relationships are with people outside the church. They don't even have close relationship because they can see church as just a consumer. They see churches come in and leave. I'm urging you and me today to be a New Testament church where we can remember one another with hopefulness for the future. Where my older saints can look at the younger, younger people in this church and say, oh yeah, this church is in good hands. But that only happens in relationship. Where all my younger saints in the room can look at our elders among us and look at any white hair around us or gray hair around us and they have something to look forward to that's bigger than a house. They have something to look forward to in their later years of life that's more expensive and costly than a car. They're able to look to some season of life and say, it's going to be bigger than just retirement. They're able to look at a life that is drenched in God's grace. That's the motivation of this text. It is urging upon you and me to live a life of legacy. And not only to live a life of legacy, but to leave a life behind that preaches the gospel itself. So that when you and I are dead and someone stands over our grave, or you and I are dead and someone stands over our, our, our funeral procession, whatever the case is, we're able to say, hey, he still speaks. We're able to say her life still speaks. She's still talking from the grave. You say, Craig, well, how do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. How do we mold the foundations with fire in our souls? And number one, we must come to see that we do not start the faith. We continue the faith. We don't start the faith. We continue the faith. We learn to live a life of legacy and leave a life that preaches the gospel when we realize we are on a continuum. Now, this passage in 2 Timothy is a Bible passage that is both prescriptive and descriptive. What I mean by that is sometimes they're one or the other. This is both. Listen to Paul as he transfers some of his knowledge to you and me. Verse 3, I thank my God whom I serve. Everybody say serve. I told you earlier, this is the word used in Romans 12 to mean sacrifice. What Paul is saying is I thank my God that I've lived a life of sacrifice for gospel. I thank my God that I've lived a life of sacrifice with a clear conscience. My life is offered up as a sacrifice in worship. I thank my God that I have sacrificed my life with a clear conscience. You know what Paul's essentially saying, church? He's saying, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it all over again. He's saying, listen, isn't that a testimony? Don't you want to stand at the end of your life and say, I thank my God that with a clear conscience, ain't nobody and no voice going to get me and move me from this point. I have served every day of my life with sacrificing for God. What what a statement. I've lived my whole life with a clear conscience of sacrifice for his kingdom. 
that my life has been lived as a fragrant offering for the kingdom of God. Now, Paul then switches and he does something powerful. I want young people to really perk up and listen to me. This is what's going to help us in times like ours, uncertainty of times. He said, I do it the way my forefathers did. I do it the way my ancestors did. You know what he's saying? He's saying, when I look at Abraham, he worshiped God on the side of a mountain called Moriah. And, 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 and Abraham gave God everything that was near and dear to him. God said, take your only son, Isaac. He, he makes it prescriptive and says, Isaac, because if he just said your son, he'd have probably taken Ishmael. He'd have talked take him that which didn't cost him much but he said your only son Isaac and go up on Moriah and sacrifice him at the place I tell you and I worship God like Abraham did Paul is saying in verse 3 and he got up there and, and he, he trusted God and God provided as Jehovah Jireh and a ram caught in what the middle of the bush he said you know what I worship God like Moses you remember Moses he met God at a burning bush outside the west side of Mount Horeb and when he met God on the west side of Mount Horeb God told him to take his shoes off because the place he was standing was holy ground. Paul says, you know what? God looked at Moses and you better respect my holiness. And Paul is saying, I'm joining with Moses and my ancestors. I've come to see God as not to be played with. I've come to see God as not to play church with. God is not to be trifled with. God is to be revered. God is to be holy. God is to be set apart. God is to be respected. Paul is saying, I worship God like Moses did. He said, I'm not only worshiping God like Abraham did. I'm not only worshiping God like Moses did, but I realize God God is also a God of a woman like Rahab too. That God is a God of Rahabs. Rahab, you know who she was? She worked the red light district in Jericho. She worked what her mama gave her. She used what her mama gave her to make another diamond dollar, to do whatever she could to try to get people, why? Get money, get, get, get a, a substance for life. And you know what happened? Even though she was in that kind of profession, God rescued her. And you know what she did? She opened the doors to Jericho to let the spies in. But what what she was really doing is she was opening the door of the family of God where she would walk in. And God, and Paul says, I thank God that I serve the God of Rahab, where God doesn't care about who you slept with when he calls you. He can take you with your past that's messed up. He can wash you. He can cleanse you in the blood. He can dignify you and he can use you. Paul says, I worship my God with a clear conscience like all of my ancestors. Folks, I can keep on going. I worship God like Rahab did. I worship God like Barak and Deborah. I worship God like Ruth and Naomi. I worship the God of Jonah and Habakkuk. At every turn in scripture, there are great exhibitions of faith. And when we get fearful, we forget we're continuing the faith. We didn't start it and we're not going to end it. But are we going to be found faithful in our season? I think my God whom I serve with a clear conscience of the God of my ancestors, a heritage of believers that tell us faith transcends generations. And yes, y'all, our parents speak to us, but we ain't hanging out with our parents that have dead and gone. Y'all, we live in a day of made-up spirituality where people are deconstructing their faith everywhere. Let me just get on it just for a minute because I'm already there. People are demystifying the scriptures Listen, I get it, y'all. Think critically about your faith. Investigate the, the, the claims of the faith, but don't go crazy. I see people on Twitter talking about good evangelicals. I'm hanging out with my ancestors, hanging out with my predecessors. No, your ancestors are testifying to us as a great cloud of witnesses. Hebrews chapter 12 says we are surrounded by such a 
great cloud of witnesses that we throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and we run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. In other words, those that have dead and bygone that are with the Lord, they're testifying to us, but we ain't hanging out with them. I mean, that's, that's, that's really popular in the evangelical world. I'm seeing it all over the place with people deconstructing their faith. No, they're testifying. In other words, the same God that caused the walls of Jericho to come down, the same God that helped David to slay a giant with a stone, the same God who delivered the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, the same God who gave Ruth power to hang out with Naomi, the same God who met with Esther that night is the same God who is with us. And the ancestors are testifying to us. Listen, run your race. They're saying to us today, if he did it for us, he will do it for you. He's never failed me yet. I, listen, church, we've come long too far for us to turn back now. You've come to me long too late for, me, for you to tell me that God can't rescue and redeem broken souls. You, you showed up one too many years too late to come tell me in your deconstruction phase that God can't rescue an addict, that God can't change the entire family lineage of a family. You have come way too late. I worship the God of my ancestors who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul said, I worship the God in the same way my ancestors did. Y'all, I am amazed at the number of people falling away today because they read a book from a professor at Georgia Tech or they read a book from somebody who's at Duke University. They had a professor somewhere. And y'all, let me just stay on in a minute. That's the problem, right? When you have more professors than you have pastors, when your faith comes from a classroom and not the church, when you read all the books and you believe, but you don't have anyone in your life that shows and proves it works, you're going to err in your faith. And in the Western world, we want to pump our minds with theology. I get it. I love theology. But the time is coming and it's now. You better get around people who know how to do business with God. You better take on the faith that has been imparted from previous generations and let it live in you also. It's the only thing that's going to make a difference. The only thing that's going to make a difference. Paul said, hey, I worship God in the same way my ancestors did. Is there anybody here today? Am I in the right place? That says, listen, I don't need, I don't need the, 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 the testimony of MLK Jr. I love MLK Jr. I, ain't, I don't need MLK Jr.'s testimony. Is anybody here today say, you know what? I don't need John G. Lake's testimony. I like it. I honor him. I don't need John J. Lake's testimony. Is anybody here say, you know what? I don't need John Wesley's, John Wesley's testimony. I respect him. I honor him. But, but can you stand up and say, I had a praying grandmother. I had a praying grandfather. And when my life was on the brink of falling apart, my grandfather, grandmother knew how to pray for me. Listen, is there, am I surrounded by anybody today? I had, a, I had a grandmother named Jane Mosgrove, and long before anybody in the Mosgrove family served God, and nobody served God but Jane and Oscar Mosgrove. And I remember being two and three years of age and being taken to her for babysitting. And she would pray in the spirit and get me in the rocking chair. And she'd let the sun come through in that early morning. And she'd pray in the spirit. And ain't nobody praying. Ain't nobody else in her family saved. Ain't nobody has no family lineage. Ain't nobody called the ministry at that point. Ain't nobody know the grace and mercy of Jesus. I don't need MLK's testimony. I don't even need John Wesley's. I got Jane Mosgrove's testimony. I got Oscar Mosgrove's testimony, who was poor, and they didn't have much monetarily, but boy, they were rich in integrity. They were rich in prayer. They were rich in what it means to, to touch the hand of God and to touch the heart of God. And when I was on the brink of destroying my life, I had a grandmother who knew how to get a hold of God. If it was good for Paul, 
Paul and Silas, if it was good for my grandma and grandpa, it is good for me also. I'm not trying to make light of it, folks, but a pandemic is not new in this earth. Listen, our God is faithful. I'm not minimizing it. I'm not saying we shouldn't take it with wisdom, but you cannot let the love of God from the heart of God grow cold in your heart when you forget that the same God of yesteryear is the God of today and he will be the God of the future. Folks, I feel the anointing of God on my life today to speak to the next generation and pray for the next generation that our God is faithful to a thousand generations. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's waiting for people to trust him. He is a faithful God and he changes not. That same faith lives in you, Timothy. I saw it in your grandma. I saw it in your mom. But just because that faith is in there, Timothy, doesn't mean it's going to take over. You got to fan it. You got to fan it into flame. Now, I don't know about y'all, but that's the kind of preacher I want to be. Anybody want to be that kind of live, that, that kind of disciple? with the fire of God in your soul. You want to mold some foundations with some fire in your soul. I want us, God to start a fire in my soul. That's what I told the Lord again this week. I want, to, I want to be burning so brightly that the world around me starts to glow. I asked God this week, I want my fire to burn from this pulpit all the way down to the kids and DP kids so that they start smelling in the air. There is a scent of God burning in the air. God must be doing anything. I walked that, that, that property and I just asked God in these halls where these DP kids meet, and these DP students meet. Lord, I'm not interested. I know all the theology. I can give all that to my 11-year-old. I can give all that to my 9-year-old. I can give that all to my 4-year-old. But I want them to have the fire of God in their soul. I want to build a fire of God in my home where my son doesn't just know the truths of the gospel, doesn't just have head knowledge, but he has heart power. That God, you would burn so brightly in us as adults when we get into that new building that, listen, that stench and that smoke would go through the hallways and kids and next generation be awakened to say, listen, there is, a, there is a God at work somewhere in here. God must be doing something in our lives. Paul said, you better, you better fan into flame the gift of God. Anybody in here want the people you live with or the people you go to school with or the people at your work to realize that there is a God who can start fires? Fire. Aren't you tired of living without the fire? Anybody tired of just doing dishes and Doing the same thing without the fire of God and waking up every day and going to your job without the fire of God? At some point, you got to get a divine dissatisfaction and discontentment and say, God, I ain't moving until I get the fire back. You're gonna, I'm going to stoke it, revitalize it. Something's going to have to happen, but I ain't going to keep moving forward in fear. Lord, let the fire burn in my soul. If we're going to be people who mold the foundations of many generations... With fire in our souls, we, number two, have to realize we don't invent the truth. We tell the truth. We don't revise the truth. We tell the truth. And in our Western world, we're going to be pushed to and fro, left and right, to try to acquiesce and surrender what is vital and what is true and what is doctrinally pure. We don't invent the truth. We tell the truth. Paul said, I've been arrested as a herald, an apostle, a teacher. Now, y'all, let me tell you something. We have the ultimate advantage in the church. You know what it is? It's called the oil of the Spirit. It's called the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Y'all with me this morning? Yeah. Anybody like to lose? You like to lose in sports or anything? I didn't think many people like, I can't stand losing. So anytime I play something, I want to know, I want to get an upper hand before we get into the activity. 
what I can do to win, okay? Let me tell you something. We got an advantage in the world right now. You know what it is? It's the bomb of Gilead. It's the anointing of God's Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is promised by Jesus for you, for me, for all of us. I was reading back in Psalm 23, the Good Shepherd Psalm this week, and I saw something in verse 5 that I've never really connected to the next words. I'd like to share it with you today because it just really spoke to my soul. Now, I know there's people in here that might flinch a little when we even talk about the Holy Spirit. I get that. Many of us in this room are from different parts of the evangelical world. So maybe you saw abuse. I, I get it. I'm, I, as this pastor, I get it. I understand. So you feel this flinch. Oh, my goodness. What's he talking about? The anointing of the Holy Spirit. But can I recalibrate your heart just for a minute? If I were the devil, so if I were your enemy, I try to do everything within my power to keep you away from Jesus before salvation. But after salvation... I would try to do even more to keep you from the person of the Holy Spirit. I would do everything in my power to get you mentally blocked, to get you experientially insecure. I'm just going to preach this for a minute, okay? To get you to flinch from the person and fullness of the Holy Spirit because when a child of God steps into partnership with the Holy Spirit, impossible things immediately become possible immediately become possible. I want to show you a little bit different perspective of Psalm 23, verse 5. I think God, through David, is kind of rubbing it in the enemy's face. Look what he says. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You get the image? God's preparing a table for you on the battlefield for you and him to eat. And what he does, I like when God talks to my enemies like this. I don't know, my creative imagination just sees Psalm 23 like this. Hey, Craig, here's a table right in the middle of your battlefield, and you and I are going to have a little meal together. Hey, hold on just a second. All Craig's enemies, get up close, but don't you dare touch him. You sit right there, you don't say a word. You watch, me and him. And listen, I felt, I felt like when, when, I, when I read that this week and connecting it to the next words, I just felt like the Lord literally spoke to me. Craig, the meal annoys the enemy but the anointing terrifies your enemy. And I never connected. If you go back to verse 5, it says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And then it says this, you what? Anoint my head with oil. You know what that word anoint means? To rub or to smear. I can't help but to think that every time God rubs the oil of heaven all over us, he's rubbing it in the face of our enemies that he's partnering with us. <laughs> Whenever God, the Spirit is poured upon my life, it is rubbing in the face of my adversary that God has partnered with me. That if God be on my side, who can be against me? That if God be for me, who can be against me? That if God is on my side, who brings charge against God's elect? For those he what elects, he justified, and those he justified and sanctified, and those he sanctified, he will one day glorify. The powers of hell shake when the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes upon one of his children. Now, now, let me make sure we're on the same page real quick because there's a difference between gifting and anointing. So I'm going to give you my working definitions of these two words. Gifting is an inherent ability to do something well. That means you're good at it. The anointing is divine enablement to do something beyond your natural ability. That's different. Now, question for you. How many of us would like to be divinely enabled to do everything God has asked us to do that's beyond our natural ability? I thought so. We must understand then, number three, we must understand and see the anointing of the Holy Spirit as essential. We're going to have fire in our souls and mold foundations. We must see the anointing of the Holy Spirit as 
essential. The Hebrew word for Messiah is the word Mashiach. The Greek word for Messiah is Christos. Do you know they mean the same thing? It means the anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah, meaning he's the anointed one. Jesus is the Christ, meaning he's the anointed one. Listen, Jesus was the anointed one. He's still the anointed one. And every reference in your Bible to Jesus as Messiah or Christ is a reminder to you and me and to all of hell the necessary association with and anointing from the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life. Now, Luke's gospel does a fabulous job of communicating this. I'll just show you a couple quick verses of how we see that Luke tells us Jesus is the anointed one, the necessary association with the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 4, or verse th- chapter 3, verse 22, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form on Jesus like a dove. And the voice came from heaven and said, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now look at the very next chapter, verse 1. Then Jesus being filled, everybody say filled, with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jump down to verse 14, same chapter. He's in the wilderness being tempted. Then Jesus, after that, returned in the power of what? The Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went all throughout the region. Now he goes into the synagogue, and he starts his manifesto. Now he could have picked, he could have picked any passage in the Old Testament to read from. But when he gets in the synagogue, guess what? Scroll he opens up. He opens up Luke 4, 17 and 18, the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens up to Isaiah 61. And what does he say? He says, as he opens up that scroll, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus was fully God, church, but he was fully man. And as fully man, he was a man of the Spirit. Hear me, the key to the legendary life that Jesus lived on this earth was the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You say, Craig, Craig, what's the question? Here's my question. Are you ready? Next slide. If Jesus, the Son of God, had and needed to be anointed by the Holy Spirit for his work, what makes us think we don't need to be anointed for ours? What makes us think that we can stand offish or keep it at an arm's distance or a shoulder's distance? You say, Craig, how do I know that I don't see the anointing of the Holy Spirit as essential? Simple answer. Here's how you know you don't see the anointing of the Holy Spirit as essential. You rarely ask for it. You rarely ask for his anointing. Listen, when's the last time, businessman, before you walked up into a business meeting, you said, hey, Pauls, I'm going to pray for a minute. And you said, Holy Spirit, anoint me for this meeting. Anoint me as I go into the. Hey, parents, when's the last time before you had a conversation with your children about how to really get to the heart issue of what they're going on? And you say, pause just for a minute and go to your prayer place and say, Holy Spirit, anoint me for this conversation. Anoint me to hear the words behind the words. Help me to speak the words that are in due season. See, we know we see the Holy Spirit's anointing as essential when we always ask for it. When we ask for it. If we're going to mold foundations, we must see the Holy Spirit and his anointing is essential. Number four, we must also know that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is for a specific use. It's for a specific use. What do you mean, Craig? The Holy Spirit doesn't give you a blank check of anointing to use it how you want. Anytime the Holy Spirit gives us his anointing, it's for a specific purpose. Now, I want to explain this to you, just something that maybe take an hour, maybe take 60 seconds. When Jesus gets up and preaches out of Isaiah chapter 61 and he opens up the text... He doesn't just say, I'm anointed by the Spirit. He declares the why behind the anointing. Hear me, hear me. This is why only purposed people experience his anointing. Because if you're not purposed, why do you need power? People who sit on their hands and don't do anything for God, why would they experience the fullness of his power? People who don't get involved in the sake of rescuing people from the, the demons of hell, 
to even take the stained clothes, as Jude says, why would you need the anointing? His anointing comes upon purposed people, people who have a purpose, people who live purposed in their life. So Jesus gets up and he gives the why. And he says in Luke 4, 18, remember, he didn't say, hey, the Spirit of the Lord's on me to do whatever I want. No, no, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, what? Look at this, to preach the gospel to the poor. To what? To bind up the brokenhearted. You can throw that scripture on the screen. What else? To proclaim liberty to the captive. What else? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Declare the year of jubilee, he said in Luke 4.18. In other words, listen, Jesus knew when the Holy Spirit gives an anointing, it's always for a specific reason. Which means this. Next slide, think about it. When the Holy Spirit gives you his anointing, it's because God has already given you an assignment. If he gives you his anointing, it's because he's already called you to something. It's because he's already constrained your heart for something, for God's purpose for your life. He then gives the spirit to strengthen you. So I want you to think about all the responsibilities and and, and assignments God has given you in this season. I'm going to speak for myself. You speak for you. I'm a Christ follower. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a friend. I'm a pastor. I'm an employee, I'm a business owner, I'm a teacher, I'm a faculty member, I'm an employee at a school, right? I'm a dad. And sometimes when we get in a pandemic like this, people are like, Pastor Craig, I see that God's anointed me to be a king and priest in a kingdom of priests, but I'm exhausted. I don't even have enough bandwidth for my already responsibilities. What you up there preaching about taking on new things? Well, you must understand how the anointing works, church. I think many believers see the anointing like this, like a a jar or a cup that has to be used for all your assignments. I think people see, oh, I'm a dad, so the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'll give you a little bit of that. Oh, you're, you're an employee? Okay, okay, we'll give you a little... I'm a friend. Oh, I can't, I can't give y'all friends. I can't give y'all myself this month because I'm literally exhausted. I don't, I don't, have, any, I don't have enough anointing to, to be able to make it. No. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, church, is not one jar for all of your assignments. It's a jar for each of your assignments. I don't know how else to explain it because people ask me all the time, well, how do you do what you do? How do you stay occupied and not get burned out? Well, listen, I don't know how else to say it other than I couldn't do it if I didn't have a jar of oil for every assignment. I have grace to do what God has asked me to do, and you have grace to do what God's asked you to do. You ain't got to be stingy with it. There are rivers of living water. I'm preaching to you today. There are rivers of living water. You don't have, you can be recklessly extravagant with your generosity. You can live with a heart wide open. Why? Because he has a jar for every assignment. Now, what that means then is you can look at it one of two ways. When God comes to you and says, hey, I want you to get involved, you can say, well, I'm so tired. I'm exhausted. I can't do more. Or you can say, ooh, if you've given me an assignment, you've already promised to give me a new jar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, give me the assignment. Bring on the jar, baby. Why? Because with every assignment comes a jar of anointing. That's what it says in 2 Kings chapter 4 with the widow. As long as the jars kept coming out, there was more oil. There's enough oil for every assignment God's given you. There's enough oil to keep you refreshed. There's enough oil to keep you strong. But you have to receive it. You have to stir it up. Fifthly, if we're going to mold foundations, we must know the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes with power. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, what? You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Y'all remember in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 where there's a conversation between God and Satan about Job? You remember that? So God's in the, in the throne room and, and Satan comes to him, remember? And, and God's like, man, he's blameless. My man Job, you considered him, he's blameless. You know what Satan says? Satan says, hey, yeah, t- yeah he's blameless because you give him everything he wants. And so you know what he says? He says, Satan says, hey, take everything from him and see if he'll curse you and he'll die. And you know what God says? Okay, test my man Job, but don't you kill him. Don't you take his life. You know what Revelation chapter 12 tells us in verse 10? That Satan is the accuser of the brethren. You know who brethren are? Saved people, sistren. That means Satan right now always is having conversations in heaven about how he can accuse you and keep accusing you and keep accusing you. So when I think of passages like this, I don't know about you, but my mind starts thinking, I wonder how many of these conversations go on in heaven about us all the time that we don't know about. So can I just tell you one that I made up this week in my mind, see if it helps you right quick? Like I think God's in his throne and he says, hey, to all the hosts, I'm going to make David a king. Satan's like, ah, a little Davy Jr., runt boy, backside... Yeah, make him king because he will be no opposition for me. All the people around him stand head and shoulders above him. He is literally on the backside of a desert. He's not important. He is a runt. He's going to be the least of his clan. But then what happens is... God invites Satan up to that 1 Samuel 16 passage. And when the prophet Samuel comes into the house, he says, hey, I'm going to anoint the next king of Israel, and none of the brothers are the one. He says, you got another one? Well, I got a little runt boy out there in the field, but if he comes in, he's going to track sheep dung all on the carpet. I, I, no, call for him right now. So here comes David into the deal. And the Spirit of God says, that's him. And you know what Samuel the prophet does? 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, the Bible says, he anoints him with oil, hear me. And the Spirit of the Lord came past powerfully upon David from that day on. And you know what Satan said? Oh, time out. That ain't fair. That ain't fair, God. You, 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 you and I had this conversation, and, and you said you're going to make him king, but you didn't tell me you were going to give him the power to make him king. You didn't tell him you were going to give the divine enablement to be able to do what was impossible because Satan knows he is doomed for when we are anointed. Hear me, church. The Holy Spirit with us, the Holy Spirit on us, bringing the power of God to us and through us makes the powers of hell tremble every single time. That's why Paul can say, I boast all the more in my weakness because it's in my weakness his power is made strong. Hear me, church. Hear me. Human weakness. I'm going to make it personal to you. Human weakness, your human weakness, is the divine setup for the God of the universe to flex his strength through you. To flex his strength. To show the world of his goodness and grace. We have to understand it's for a specific purpose and it comes with power. And then finally, sixthly, this is the most important one. If we're going to mold the foundations, we can't ever let the anointing become more important than the anointer. Would you come, man? The key to the anointing of the Holy Spirit is to prize the Holy Spirit more than you prize the anointing that he gives. Church, let me ask you a question. Do you want the Holy Spirit to be your best friend? Some of you look at it and I already know he is. Do you want the Holy Spirit to be your best friend? To be the helper, the advocate, the comforter, 
that Jesus promised he would be. You know, one of the things I think that distinguished King David from King Saul was how each of them viewed the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about this before? You remember when King Saul sinned and God takes the kingdom from him? You remember how God confronts him through the prophet Samuel? And when Samuel confronts him in his sin, you know what Saul does? He says, you've grieved the heart of God. The kingdom will be taken from you, Samuel tells Saul. And God will find a man after his own heart. And guess what Saul does not do? He does not lament. He doesn't even repent. He doesn't lament initially. But when King David committed sin with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, and God confronts him through the prophet Nathan, you know what happens to David's life? He grieves y'all, and he writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, verse 14, he says, Don't cast me from your presence. And he starts begging God, Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Y'all, I don't know how else to say it. Other than I, I see King David after he had messed up. Can I give you my paraphrase? I think David's looking in the direction of the Holy Spirit, his best friend, who had come on him in power as a young boy. And he says, Listen, Holy Spirit, if you aren't with me I can't be me I can't be me Holy Spirit Holy Spirit if you leave me I don't even want to be me Holy Spirit the best part about being me is not the kingdom the Holy Spirit the best part about me is not being on a worship team the Holy Spirit I've told the Lord this before it's not about me receiving the call of God the best part about me is not being able to lead other people to salvation the best part about me is not being able to lead a church or to plant a church or to be used for God's kingdom the best part about being me is you Holy Spirit Can you imagine what would happen to the church if we adopted that kind of posture in our day and age? Holy Spirit, the only thing good about me is you. The only thing good about my life is you and your grace and your power and your wisdom and your insight. Lord, if you take your Holy Spirit from me, I'm as good as dead. I don't know. I've just come by today to encourage this church. I don't know how to say it. I feel an anointing from the Holy One. Holy, I feel holy anointing to pray for future generations, to pray for the generation at hand and the children and grandchildren to be reached through the ministry of this church. I'm around them every day. I'm around the confusion. I'm around the gender dysphoria. I'm around all of the assaults of hell. I talk to parents whose kids are assaulted on every side. And I want nothing more but the fire of God to liberate them. I want nothing more but the encounter with God's true Holy Spirit that would ruin them for anything other than God's goodness. For wayward sons and daughters to come back home from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And if I spend the rest of my life molding foundations for future generations. I'm going to do it with fire in my soul. Anybody want fire in your soul today? Let's stand right now. Come on, just lift our hands to the Lord. Let's just honor and ask Him right now. Jesus is the Spirit baptizer. He is the Savior, sanctifier, Spirit baptizer, healer, and soon coming King. That's who Jesus is. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.